Valentine's Day, everybody, even though it's not until the next day following this release, but that's okay. Happy Valentine's Day anyway, whether you're taken or single, because we all deserve to have a nice box of chocolates and some flowers and a good movie and some... We all deserve love on Valentine's Day, you know? All of us. Anyway, welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome to Crime and Theory, a podcast dedicated to everything outside the parameters of normal. I'm your host, Ashley. Now, before we dive into this week's episode, and there is a lot to this week's episode, I kind of have a PSA. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, as I said, and while some of us are going to be sitting at home eating too much candy, (coughs) me, and some of us will be out celebrating with romantic gifts and dinner, there is a family that I know of that's going to be hoping and praying for answers, and I'm talking about the family of Asia Degree. I'm not going to do a missing persons episode today, so don't worry, it's not my area of expertise, and I feel that Crime Junkie did an amazing job covering this case, and I highly advise that you go listen. But the rundown is Aisha Degree was 9 years old when she went missing on Valentine's Day in 2000 from her home in Shelby, North Carolina. While there have been some clues, some seemingly big clues, uncovered, those clues have never led to her discovery. It's been 20 years since Aisha has gone missing, and her family still holds on to hope that one day they will have answers. Please just go listen to the episode. I'll even link it if I can. And when you're done listening, if you know anything at all, or if you know someone who might know something, please come forward and point them in the right direction. You can call Crime Stoppers if you need to, to remain anonymous. It doesn't cost anything to just do the right thing and be a good person. This girl does not deserve to have her case forgotten. She doesn't deserve to be forgotten. And please, let's bring this family some answers and possibly some closure, if at all possible. Now, having said that, this week we're going to go back in time to one of the most crucial dates in American history. And that date is November 22nd. 1963. And if you're a Stephen King fan like I am, 112263 should be setting off all the bells. I'm talking about the JFK assassination and the conspiracy theories that still run rampant today. Let's get to it. So, imagine it. It's November 1963. You're dressed to the nines and standing on the side of the road of Vili Plaza, hoping, praying even, that your beloved president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, will maybe make eye contact or wave at you as he rides by in his motorcade. You're probably a little distracted, thinking about Thanksgiving next week, what you're going to make or eat. It's a little afternoon on a Friday, and businesses around you are shut down so that the workers can come out and observe the president visiting your city of Dallas, Texas. Time passes, and finally, you see the motorcade coming your way. You can almost see him and his wife. You feel a little envious of Jackie, or maybe even John. How does she always look so put together? How does he always look so handsome, like he doesn't have a care in the world, when you know that he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders? They get closer and closer, and suddenly you hear shots ring out. Panic begins to ensue. Time seems to stand still for you because you're probably in shock. 
but people are running, screaming, ducking, hoping that those shots aren't aimed at them. But it's from that moment that the course of your life and American history would be altered forever. It's from that point on that people can't stop talking. They're talking about everything from Lee Harvey Oswald to Jack Ruby to Lyndon Baines Johnson. And people started to speculate the reasons behind Kennedy's death. Because people don't just kill people for no reason. Although sometimes they do. But was Oswald working for enemy forces like the KGB? Did Jack Ruby come out and shoot Oswald to keep him from talking? Were there more shooters waiting to take out Kennedy as he passed by? Did Johnson have people hired to kill Kennedy because he feared losing his job? Questions like this began and just snowballed into having a life all on their own. And these conspiracy theories that were born revolving around President Kennedy's death that we know have lived on for decades. Even conspiracy theories that have been completely crossed off by our government still thrive. People are naturally distrustful of Big Brother because, to be honest, they've given us reason to be. So many people don't believe the government when they speak up. Now, pretty much everybody knows how this story ends. Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested for shooting JFK from the seventh-story window of the Texas School Book Depository. He explained that he was being used as a patsy and was shot to death a couple days later by Jack Ruby in front of cameras. Everything seemed to be tied up with a nice, neat little bow. The end. I wish. I went diving to see what I could find about the conspiracies and possible cover-ups involving Kennedy's assassination, and I wound up falling down a massive rabbit hole. I mean, you guys might be learning something for the first time, but I know I learned a bunch of stuff for the first time, and I feel like I should have paid way more attention in U.S. history back in school. But I found out that some of these theories wound up being actually blanket terms for other theories, like the term inside job. That could mean the CIA or LBJ being involved. Second shooter could mean the man on the grassy knoll or Umbrella Man, who I had never heard of. And speaking of Umbrella Man, we're going to start there. We know about the Zapruder film, the film that captured Kennedy being hit and the moments before and after. And this film has been picked apart until kingdom come, to be honest. In this film, there's a man holding a black umbrella. And this man opens his umbrella as gunfire rings out. Is he signaling Oswald to take the shot? Or was it more like a 1960s spy film where the villain opens his inconspicuous umbrella, shooting their target with either an ice bullet or a dart laced with poison? It sounds a bit extreme. And the ice bullet thing I threw in just for fun. But people actually believed this theory. They believed that he actually could have shot a real bullet or a poison dart. And people actually believed it for 15 years afterwards. It wasn't until then that this situation would be cleared up. Umbrella Man himself, actually named Louis Stephen Witt, spoke up after the U.S. House Select Committee of Assassinations sought assistance from the public. When he did, Witt said that he had no idea of the controversy he had caused. It came to light that the only reason he was even there with that umbrella to begin with was to heckle the president, not harm him. 
he explained more in depth that JFK's father, Joseph, was a supporter of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who was a known Nazi appeaser. So why a black umbrella? A black umbrella was Chamberlain's trademark accessory. Witt said by opening the black umbrella, he was protesting the Kennedys for appeasing Hitler prior to World War II. And of course, I can't cover conspiracy theories this episode if I don't cover the grassy knoll. I would never forgive myself because that's probably the most prominent theory out there. And it came to light when the film, the Zapruder film that I mentioned earlier, showed Kennedy's head snap back into the left as though he had been hit from the front rather than behind. The evidence, however, doesn't match this theory. For one, the bullet that shot Kennedy matched the gun Oswald used. And I know that, yeah, there are theories about an extra bullet in the car, but Tessa pointed to the shot that went through the president's throat, also went through the governor, breaking a rib, going through his arm, and lodging into his thigh the way he was sitting. And lastly, experts have concluded that the head going back into the left was actually just a recoil effect from the impact. However, that does not mean that a man was not on the grassy knoll ready to shoot, and that doesn't mean that Oswald was the only one there intent on killing Kennedy. It just means that Oswald evidently shot first. I'm not saying this to make you think that there was actually a person on the grassy knoll. I'm not trying to say anything to make you think that there wasn't. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Now we're going on to the driver was the shooter theory, which is bonkers. And to be honest, I think it's a bit excessive. Not about the possibility of it happening, just the reason behind it. But still humor me, because it's a good one. William Greer was an Irish immigrant who had moved from Ireland to the U.S. during his childhood. And he had served in the U.S. Navy and joined the Secret Service sometime after. So this man, Mr. Greer, he had served as a driver for the previous two presidents. That's Truman and Eisenhower. So naturally, he just kept his job when President Kennedy came along. Oh, and as a side note, it's probably best to keep in mind that Kennedy's family was Irish-American. Because religious. And people had a field day with what William Greer did immediately after the shooting. What could he have done that was so bad? Well, remember, Greer had been a Secret Service driver for many years at this point, and he was well-trained. The first thing he should have done was floor it and get the car and the people inside to safety. But what were his actions? He apparently slowed down. Now, if you'll let me play devil's advocate for just a second, I just want to say that it doesn't matter how much training a person has. We don't know what our instinctive actions are going to be until the event arises. So it could have been from immediate panic, or he could have looked back in concern. Who knows? You can see him look back at Kennedy in the film to check on him. People jumped to conclusions about Greer and wildly speculated that he actually had taken a handgun and shot the president himself. There's a glare in the film at the top of the person beside Greer's head, and the people took that to be a gunshot because the way the camera was, and it was a very, very bright day, it was a very quick and really bright flash of light. But experts, quote-unquote, have come to the conclusion that it's actually a glare on the hair of the person beside Greer and the way the sun hits. 
But let's say that Greer did have a gun. Why would he want Kennedy dead? Like I said earlier, religion. Greer couldn't stand Kennedy because he was Catholic and Greer was an Ulster Protestant. And that's a history lesson that I don't really want to get into, but in the province of Ulster, there has been prejudice and political division between the two, Catholics and Protestants, since the 1600s. So this is a really old religious war, if you will. But back to Greer, it wasn't an unfounded theory about him hating the president. Greer's own son actually wound up speaking up and confirming that the driver was not a fan. And I know religion has been the basis of homicide and even genocide multiple times throughout history. But this just seems a bit ridiculous to me for to kill someone in broad daylight with a multitude of secret service there to take you down at any moment. So let's pretend for a moment that Oswald was the sole shooter. That will bring us to the question of was he hired to do it? Could this be an inside job? Let's start with the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA. This theory carried some actual weight for a little bit, and still does to be honest. JFK's own brother Robert suspected the CIA of being up to no good from just about the start. This suspicion later changed, but Robert always did conclude that Lee Harvey Oswald was just too average, too ordinary, and just not special enough to have carried out this plan alone. But during the time Robert suspected the CIA, he just thought that there was something wonky within the organization. Now, Bobby wound up meeting with the CIA director, John McCone, and from then on out, his fears were quelled. But the damage was done. The people were also suspecting the CIA of cruel intention. So why were the people so distrusting? Kennedy was believed to have had a pretty rough relationship with the CIA top dogs who had been appointed prior to Kennedy's inauguration by President Eisenhower. And while Eisenhower was in office, the CIA had ample freedom to basically do whatever they wanted, how they wanted, when they wanted. They had been in the works of dealing, and by dealing I mean Xing out, foreign figureheads from places like Cuba and Iran, and Kennedy wanted to reel that in a bit. He wasn't completely opposed to covert operations and whatnot, but he was more diplomatic, and he wanted to take a more diplomatic approach to how they handled things. So he was rocking the boat, and the members of the CIA were not happy. And it only made matters worse when the Bay of Pigs invasion failed, and Kennedy didn't really give much support. Or any support, actually. So, what happened was the CIA tried to lead an armed revolt against Fidel Castro. It backfired, and Kennedy would not stand behind them in this endeavor. Alan Dulles, head of CIA at the time, at least I think his last name is Dulles, I apologize if I got that wrong, but he lost his job because of that debacle, and that was what supposedly sparked plans to take out Kennedy. And to add fuel to that fire, there was an anonymous source that spoke to the New York Times, saying they knew Kennedy personally and quoted him as having said he wanted to, quote, splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds, end quote. Most recently, an author from Los Angeles named Lisa Pease spoke at a JFK conspiracy symposium. Yes, 
the conspiracy symposium is a real thing. And yes, I fully agree we should go. Let's do it. But she said, quote, It would be odd in a way if they didn't go after Kennedy. He was one of the few leftist leaders still standing. But not to rain on our little tinfoil hat parade. Of course, this conspiracy has been debunked, too. Like pretty much all the others. Here's the thing, though. This debunking is more disproving from word of mouth than tangible evidence. And sure, there's some evidence, like Robert Kennedy recommended that Dulles be appointed to the Warren Commission in 1964, which of course was after the murder, and we can actually prove that, but how do we know that the CIA didn't just come up with an excellent lie? One so good that Bobby Kennedy believed it. But like those infomercials say, but wait, there's more. An ex-Washington Post reporter, Jeffrey Morley, went to court against the CIA and is to this day still fighting them with the legal system. It's been 17 years that they've been battling this out. Morley wants the CIA to declassify the files pertaining to Kennedy's death. He runs a site called jfkfacts.org where you can read up on what he's doing and it is fascinating. So you should, you might want to go, you might want to go check it out. Anyway, those records are the work of former CIA agent George, I cannot pronounce his last name, so I will spell it for you, J-O-A-N-N-I-D-E-S. This man was in charge of keeping an eye on the anti-Castro Cubans in the South. This group had had brushes with our trigger man, Oswald, and this gives us a pretty close connection between the two. Morley thinks that this indicates the CIA was keeping more of an eye on Oswald than they let on, and I have to wonder if maybe Morley is onto something. Reporters aren't exactly what I call stupid, and they're pretty good at spotting a cover-up. Also, this court case has been going on for 17 years. Why is the CIA fighting so hard? The Kennedy case is decades old. If there's nothing to hide, why not just let the man have his way? Now let me just say that Morley isn't trying to say that they hired Oswald to kill Kennedy, just that there is more than meets the eye. That the CIA was keeping a closer eye on Oswald than they cared to admit, and the CIA doesn't exactly watch people that closely without a reason. So what could that reason be? I'm sure you guys already know about Lee Harvey Oswald and what he was all about. But just to cover my bases, I'm going to give you a quick rundown. Oswald was a staunch Marxist, and Marxism is the ideology on which the political system of communism is based. Before defecting to the Soviet Union, Oswald had served in the U.S. military. Once he defected, he got into a relationship with a woman who turned down his marriage proposal and eventually wound up marrying Marina Prusakova after being with her less than six weeks. I'm not judging, I'm just stating facts. They had a child together named June decided they wanted to come to America as a family, went through the proper channels of paperwork to allow Marina to enter the country legally, and that was that. And when they got off the plane, Oswald actually expected the media to be having a field day over him, which sounds really narcissistic and not somebody I would ever want to deal with. I would not have liked him instantly. I just know it. But basically, nobody cared. <laughs> Oswald was upset, but I feel like you needed to know that for the next few theories. Our next theory 
is that the Cubans were behind the assassination. This theory goes that the Cuban Secret Service carried out the hit. There's a documentary, it's a German one, in which a former Cuban Secret Service agent spoke up for the first time and he said that Oswald was pointed out to the Cubans by none other than the KGB. Oswald had some contacts in the Soviet Union, and he did defect for a reason. Oscar Marino, the ex-Cuban Secret Service agent, said that the Cubans were desperate to get rid of JFK. He said to the documentarian that, quote, Oswald was a dissident, he hated his country, he possessed certain characteristics, there wasn't anyone else, you take what you can get. Oswald volunteered to kill Kennedy. End quote. There were people within our own government that also believed Oswald had been working for the Cubans as well. For instance, a former assistant secretary of state for inter-American affairs named Thomas C. Mann stated in a now declassified file that he had a, quote, feeling in his guts, end quote, that Castro paid Oswald to carry out this mission. Now, the alternative would be that the KGB could have been entirely behind it, leaving Cuba with relatively clean hands. The basis of this theory is that the KGB wanted revenge for the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, which the USSR wound up basically being humiliated. So what happened then was, in layman's terms, and to the best of my understanding, I could be wrong, I'm not a historian, it was during the Cold War and the USSR was planning on delivering Soviet nuclear missiles to Cuba after Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev made a secret agreement with Fidel Castro, leader of Cuba, to discourage anyone from trying to invade Cuba again after the whole Bay of Pigs incident. But Kennedy had put out a warning against sending nuclear weapons to Cuba. Well, his words didn't exactly carry too much weight because at one point a US U-2 aircraft took photos showing nuclear missiles where they shouldn't be. Kennedy saw these pictures the day after those photos were taken, and he brought in his closest advisors. Some of them wanted to put out an airstrike, but Kennedy, like I said, was super diplomatic, and he didn't want to incite war unless it was absolutely necessary. Other advisors wanted him to just give a stern warning, so Kennedy kind of found some middle ground and put Cuba under quarantine and sent naval ships to basically blockade the place. Then Kennedy sent a sternly worded letter to Khrushchev telling him that he, Khrushchev, was to take down everything they were building, everything they had already built, and to come get their junk. And there was a whole lot of back and forth between the Kremlin and the White House. The Kremlin being where the Russian leader lived, White House being where, you know, the president lives. And the Kremlin and the White House almost came to an agreement with no issue that the Soviet Union would take their weapons out of Cuba if America promised not to invade it again. Okay, seems fair enough. But then Russia threw in this stipulation that America also had to remove their own weapons from Turkey. And to drive home their point, a U.S. U-2 recon jet was shot down. Kennedy agreed not to invade Cuba again, but he took a risk and ignored the second part about removing weapons from Turkey. I guess Khrushchev took it and, and just accepted it because he backed off. But it did almost come to a nuclear war. So the KGB allegedly took out this hit because it wounded their pride, I guess, that they didn't 100% get their way. I don't really understand it. 
but also remember Oswald had those KGB contacts, so this isn't that far-fetched of a theory because the KGB would have had easy access to an American citizen so he could get in the country easily, who hated his country, and would gladly take out the president. Also, adding a bit of weight to this one, the KGB was alleged to have hired a contract killer to take out a woman by the name of Mary Meyer. Now, if you don't know who she is, she was Kennedy's girlfriend. And this didn't happen until Kennedy's assassination. And there's a whole lot to this one, but we don't have time for that. So, you know, I fully encourage you all to do some research of your own, because why not? Why not? But of course, this theory isn't concrete. And anyway, let's move on. Okay, I really like this next one. The Mafia did it! It's like something out of a crime family film or well, The Godfather. It's actually a pretty good theory at that. So John and Robert Kennedy, they both had a desire to wipe out organized crime, and the mafia was none too pleased with the idea because, well, clearly they would be out of a job and no longer living in their lap of luxury. Robert Kennedy was particularly interested in taking down Jimmy Hoffa. If you've seen The Irishman, you probably know a good chunk of people that I'm going to talk about, but I haven't seen it, so nothing I'm saying is based on that. Jimmy was the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which is a labor union. And early on in his Teamster career, Jimmy got involved in organized crime. Robert used his resources as attorney general to make a public attack on organized crime. But why did he keep going after Jimmy? Jimmy led the union, and the union controlled most of the U.S.'s commercial trucking, which meant illegal substances and arms dealers were able to deal pretty easily across the country, especially in big cities, which were also corrupted by a bunch of other big city labor unions. Eventually, Hoffa was convicted of attempted bribery of a grand juror and wound up getting eight years in prison. Because of everything happening with relations between Kennedy and Cuba, the mafia-run casinos on the island were also shut down which lost a lot of money for a lot of people. And these casinos were established to rival Vegas, if that tells you anything. So the labor union branch of the mafia wasn't the only one hurting. Bobby Kennedy always believed that the mafia would come after him directly because he was the one that really laid into trying to shut down organized crime. And there's a book written by Frank Regano, at least I think that's how you pronounce his name. I am not good with names, guys. I'm sorry. But he was Jimmy Hoffa's attorney. And in it, he said that Hoffa convinced two mob bosses by the name of, names of Santos Traficante and Carlos Marcello to arrange Kennedy's death. He also says that Traficante made a deathbed confession about playing a role in the killing. This is all still alleged, and it's all, you know, word of mouth. There's no actual evidence. But Traficante also said that he regretted killing John instead of Bobby. Robert, according to Evan Thomas, a biographer, had feared that he had inadvertently gotten his brother killed. He thought that either Cuba or the mob would come after him, not his brother. It's also believed that Frank Sheeran, a.k.a. the Irishman himself, claimed to have delivered guns, the exact same type of guns used in killing Kennedy, to Dallas mere days before 11 63 our government claims that there is no evidence to support this theory, but here's the thing. 
do you really think organized crime would have lasted as long as it has with idiots running the place and leaving evidence laying all around? I mean, these people are not stupid. There are so many other theories out there that I could probably do this episode for a month and probably not even cover all of them. There are literally hundreds if you really dig. But don't worry, we're not quite done yet. I save what may actually be the best for last. Last, but certainly not least, is the LBJ conspiracy. Lyndon Baines Johnson was Vice President of the United States during Kennedy's term and after the assassination stepped into the Oval Office as President. Running the next year in 1964, he won and served four more years as President. But that's enough history. I've given enough this episode. Don't worry about it. We're done. So you're fine. So let's just, you know, throw caution to the wind and say Johnson ordered the hit. Why would he want to take out his own boss? Did he desperately want to be seated as president? If so, why wait until near the end of Kennedy's term? Well, actually, according to Kennedy's personal secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, Kennedy said to her, quote, You know, if I am reelected in 64, I'm going to spend more and more time toward making government service an honorable career. I would like to tailor the executive and legislative branches of government so that they can keep up with the tremendous strides and progress being made in other fields. I'm going to advocate changing some of the outmoded rules and regulations in the Congress, such as the seniority rule. To do this, I will need, as a running mate in 64, a man who believes as I do. Mrs. Lincoln wrote this in her book, Kennedy and Johnson. She had asked him, who is your choice as a running mate? The book goes on to say, he looked straight ahead, and without hesitating, he replied, At this time, I am thinking about Governor Terry Sanford of North Carolina, but it will not be Lyndon. This conversation took place only three days before his tragic fate. So if word got back to Johnson that his job had been threatened, that could have made him angry enough to kill. And of course, like all theories, people are torn on the subject. Some support it thoroughly, some dispute it passionately, but of course we aren't stopping with just that bit. The Johnson theory has so much backing it. There's another book out there. Just take my word for it, there are a lot of books out there about this. But this one's called Blood, Money, and Power, and it suggests that Johnson had help from his friend Edward A. Clark, an attorney based in Austin, Texas, in masterminding the operation. This book suggests that Johnson's associate, Mac Wallace, was really the shooter and had a sniper's nest set up on the sixth floor of the book depository, directly below where Oswald allegedly shot. There was a partial print found smudged on that window, and the author suggests the print belonged to Mac. It's pretty unfounded of an accusation, but, you know, let's, let's keep going. So, like many politicians, Johnson supposedly had a mistress. Her name was Madeline Brown. Madeline spoke up many years later in 1997, stating that Johnson, along with H.L. Hunt, who was a Texas Republican oil tycoon, had started planning to kill Kennedy as early as three years prior in 1960. She went on to state that by the time the big day came around, dozens of people were involved in this operation. 
from leaders of the FBI to mafia members to fellow politicians to journalists. Brown had gone to a party the night before the assassination where the likes of J. Edgar Hoover, Richard Nixon, H.L. Hunt, and many more were in attendance. And she claimed that Johnson showed up late in the evening, and when he came to her, he uttered in her ear that, quote, the Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise, end quote. She further went on to say that on New Year's Eve of that year, she met Johnson at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin, where he confirmed this conspiracy, saying that, quote, the fat cats of Texas and U.S. intelligence, quote, have been behind the horrible act. This was all talked about in a documentary called The Men Who Killed Kennedy. And in 2006, there was another documentary made called Evidence of Revision, where Brown was interviewed again, and she stuck to the same story. And associates of Johnson's were also interviewed and spoke up about their suspicion of Johnson's involvement. Of course, that's all speculation and some hearsay, and it wouldn't really hold up in court, I don't think, but who knows a person better than the one sharing their bed. And there was a third-year surgical resident at the hospital that attended to Kennedy and Oswald, and this resident named Dr. Charles Crenshaw said he saw to both men. When he was attending Oswald, the phone rang, and he said it was Johnson who demanded that Oswald make a deathbed confession. Crenshaw relayed the message to Dr. Shires, who I'm sure was his superior, who said Oswald was in no condition. Crenshaw wrote about it in his book, JFK Conspiracy of Silence. See what I mean? Tons of books involved in this. So, of course, critics have debunked it, saying that there were no calls routed through the White House switchboards at the time the call was made, and Johnson would have been in his limo at the time, and nobody else in the car could corroborate Crenshaw's statement. Couldn't or wouldn't. And lastly, E. Howard Hunt, former CIA agent, accused Johnson of being complicit in the assassination in a book that was released after Hunt's death. But that, too, was met with criticism. William Buckley Jr., who wrote the foreword of the book, said it had clearly been ghostwritten. However, because this is the last note I'm going to leave you with, I'm not going to kill all of our conspiracy-loving little dreams because Hunt made an audio record deathbed confession where he claimed to be a conspirator and have first-hand knowledge of the conspiracy. that's it for this week. I'm sorry this was so long-winded, but these theories have a lot of meat to them, and I couldn't stop with just one or two. So thank you guys so much for sticking around till the end of this episode. Thank you guys so much for sticking around to listen. Just in general, I appreciate you more than you will ever know. And there are plenty more episodes in the works, so don't worry, this is definitely nowhere near the last that I have planned. So I hope you stick around for months to come. Let's talk. I, I want to hear what you guys think. What's your favorite JFK conspiracy theory? If I didn't list it, let's put on our tinfoil hats and just talk about it. 
If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, family, loved ones. And if you care to reach me, you can find me at crimeandtheory at gmail.com. Theory being spelled the same way it is on the podcast, T-H-E-E-R-I-E. You can reach me at Crime and Theory Pod on Instagram, Crime and Theory on Twitter, which I'm going to be honest, I probably won't use Twitter very much. I think I said that in a previous episode, but I just want to reiterate. And if you want to follow me personally and see my weird life and a bunch of the pictures of my dog, books I love, projects I'm knitting and whatnot, you can follow me on Instagram at Housewife in Wonderland. And I appreciate you guys so, so much. I know I just said it, but I do. I appreciate all of you who take the time out of your lives to bother with me. So thank you. Stay safe this week. Question suspicious circumstances. And as always, don't get haunted. I'll see you next week. Thank you.